0: This episode is sponsored by the one and only Estrid, the shaving subscription service with a five-blade razor specifically designed for those of us who, like me, have very sensitive skin but still want their hair removal process to be pain-free. One of the things I really love most about Estrid is their values. Their steel razors are vegan and their shipping is climate compensated, which makes them as good for the planet as they are for my skin. But they're also raising money for the Fawcett Society, a charity campaigning for gender equality and women's rights at work, at home and in public life. Listeners can donate £1 extra to the Fawcett Society if they use the code CRESSIDA when buying something from estrid.com. If you get their starter kit, it includes a handle in a pretty colour of your choice, a couple of the cartridges and a really cool wall holder.
1: Hi, I'm Zowie Ashton, and to me, love is authentic allyship.
0: Hello, I'm Cressida Bonus, and welcome to a very special episode of Fear Itself. We are changing direction and talking about love itself. It seems to me that love is the opposite of fear, and that it has the same power over us and our lives Love can change what we do, how we feel, and our entire outlook on life. It can motivate us to do amazing things, but it also can be paralysing in its intensity. In these special episodes, I will be talking to my brilliant guests about what love means to them. My guest this week is Zowie Ashton, who is an actor, writer, and director. You will have seen her most recently in Harold Pinter's Betrayal in the West End or on Broadway, or opposite Jake Gyllenhaal and Rene Russo in Velvet Buzzsaw on Netflix. Her unconventional memoir, Character Breakdown, was released in paperback in the spring. I have recently read this book, and I have to say that Zowie's writing shoots straight to my heart. It's beautifully honest and raises important questions about identity and truth. She's currently shooting The Handmaid's Tale in Canada. Hello Zoe Ashton. Hello Chris.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on Love Itself. This is just wonderful that you're here. Well, I think you've you've got quite an attractive named podcast because I think lots of people are thinking about love at the moment and all the different ways that we can um live our most loving, truthful lives. Are you in Canada now shooting
0: Handmaid's Tale? Have you been there this whole time? No, I
1: haven't been there this whole time. Um, oh, it's I was been lo- say, wow. It's been a lot of back and forth. And um so I'm in the UK right now and will imminently be flying. Which is strange because again, there's all these unknowns, right? So if there's if there's a lockdown, things change and if Canada changes its laws about things and it's all um it's all up in the air and uh the uncertainty that you live with as an actor is already kind of through the roof right and now it's like (laughs) you just live with a little bag packed because you wonder if you might just be asked to arrive or leave at any given moment
0: i know and also not knowing i mean for you you've got this job but i have no idea when my next acting job is going to be. It's just a really, really strange time in the industry and then theatre is just not even a thing at the moment, which is so unbelievably sad.
1: I think in our industries, especially in, in terms of theatre, we're learning really very important lessons about what theatre needs to look like when we come back. The writer James Graham wrote a fantastic piece for the Financial Times a while ago, and he was saying, you know, we need to start using language now to start building the picture of what we want to see when we come back. So it's not just about finding a vaccine and then we just all go back to normal, pretending nothing ever happened. We need to address the the term regional the way that we are so London centric when we think about theatre and there's just no reason for it. This is an incredible opportunity to create a completely new blueprint for the theatre and for film and for our industry in in general. Mm. And I think that's an exciting
0: time or could be an exciting time to bring those smaller theatres and fringe theatres into the light where... Whereas before, perhaps a lot of people, theatre goers who just go to the West End, don't really know about these fringe theatres, which I always think is a bit of a shame. So I think hopefully that's a, you know, that's a positive, let's hope.
1: <laughs> positive. Well, I mean, thinking about the Edinburgh Festival, for example, which I'm so gutted, the Edinburgh Festival has had social uh, distancing in place in many of its (laughs) theatres for many years. There's been little, tiny theatres that I've gone in to at the festival where there's been about three people in the audience (laughs) sitting very far away from each other. And I have to say that that has been some of the best theatre that I've ever seen.
0: And Zoe I really quickly want to talk about Handmaid's Tale because... Handmaid's Tale is one of my favourite, favourite programmes of all time. When I mean, you told me you were going to be in it, I thought, this is amazing. Zoe's going to be in Handmaid's Tale. How did, how did this part come about?
1: I had made a pilot for HBO, God, in 2013. Really powerful themes and... It's incredible director, incredible showrunner and uh, left going, well, well, we'll all be together again soon back in these bonnets. And <laughs> it never got picked up. I think the pilot itself um, was too real <laughs> for anyone, just too real. And the brilliant, brilliant Bruce Miller, who was our producer on that show, is the writer, creator, force behind what we now know is The Handmaid's Tale. So he just gave me a call and said, there's this, there's this part and um, it'd be great to just have you as, as part of the firmament.
0: Amazing, Zowie. amazing. So you don't have to, you didn't have to do one of those horrendous audition self-tapes that we sometimes have to do with a poor family member or friend who has to read the other lines in, <laughs> in your kitchen.
1: As I wish you could see in the other room, I've got a laundry basket with like a saucepan upturned with a small book on top of that saucepan because that's my camera stand for the self-tapes I've been doing. I didn't have to do a self-tape for it and and what's really interesting is you mentioned my book earlier and that's the one chapter that I took out of my book. It felt like such a weird concept to put to like a universal audience. And I wanted my book to be really universal. I didn't want it to just be like an actor's memoir. I wanted it to be like a very deep musing on female identity, as you said, and women and their relationship to performance and, uh, the male gaze and the strange way that it just seems to follow us around from the day that we're born to the day that we die. And, um, and that for me, sometimes being literally the camera lens um right and uh, maybe other people interpret it differently but um there's certainly an element of that to our industry. So I'd written this chapter about me sending this self-tape off, which was so um, terrible. Then the power of it was so strong because of its awfulness that it actually was going, you know, being sent to LA and on its way somehow started this huge computer virus where people in their offices or um, people in bars with sports playing on TV screens were suddenly inundated. There was this glitch in the system and every single screen Suddenly filled with my face and this terrible self tape. And that, you know, cars were kind of veering off the freeway because suddenly, instead of the radio playing, it was just my terrible, annoying voice on a loop. In a way, when I talk about it, I wish I'd left it in. Because, of course, it's actually a chapter that's about, anxiety you know, deep anxiety. I guess you would call it imposter syndrome. You know, every time mm-hmm. I watch one of those tapes, I go, right. This will be the one that you get found out on. Some, the acting police will call and say, sorry, we're going to have to lock you up because you've been, you've been pretending that you can do this for way too long now.
0: One of the things that really struck me about your book is that we're always presenting different versions of ourselves, but who really is our true self? And that's something that really interests me. And I think sometimes we can get lost along the way and we lose that self and, and more importantly, our, our sense of worth, especially as women. And I think if you're in the acting industry, that's kind of, you know, really, really heightened. And that's why I'm so happy you've described love as, as self-love and self-allyship. And I really wanted to ask you what you mean by that, by self-love and, and self-allyship, which is so beautiful.
1: Well, I'm working heavily at the moment in my life, with the these two very strong a words, allyship is a word I have re fallen in love with during this unprecedented time. I have reconnected with that word in a very very deep way. Um, the other word that I've reconnected to is authenticity, the authentic self, as you've just. Um, talked about is something that I've kind of been trying to pin down for a long time. And thankfully, I've got to the point where I finally realized that in pinning it down, you do auth- authenticity a disservice. Because as you say, authenticity comes in many different personalities, it comes in many different characters, it comes in many different situations. We are so many things as human beings that to say you're striving for an authentic self that is this sort of singular cup of elixir that you can drink and then just become like a whole person doesn't strike a a truthful chord with me. In the middle of this lockdown, we had a surge in movement and awareness uh, around Black lives and the unbelievable mistreatment of black people across the world. We saw the world standing up on their feet and, and and getting into the streets in a way that I've never seen in my lifetime as someone who's been a supporter of Black Lives Matter for years and um, could say since birth, cause I feel like my life matters and I am a person of color and and, um, and that's, you know, that's something that if you are a person of colour, you kind of slightly raise an eyebrow at that there needs to be a movement to um, let other people understand that your life is as, as precious as you feel it is and as, as your family think it is and as your loved ones think it is. It feels like a real dichotomy to be wanting to fight for something that you believe in, but at the same time, you cannot believe you're having to fight for that to be understood. During that time, there was a lot of writing about allyship. There was a lot online immediately about how to how to become an ally. One of the first things that I read was on Instagram and uh, it was this brilliant step-by-step um, b- by a young woman called Muriel Charpa. It was like ten, 10 steps to non-optical allyship. And uh, it's one of the best things that I've ever read because it was just outlining really clearly what it means to be an ally, and, you know, be prepared to do the work. Read up on um, anti-racist literature. Check in on on your friends and family who've potentially been in this fight for a very, very long time. Um, Understand what feels traumatic to people. You know, donate, show love, um, create art, raise your voice. And as I was reading all of this, I realised, hold on a minute. This is a type of allyship that belongs to huge movements like this but it's also a much much more fundamental word on a on a micro level and i feel like love really is allyship when i read through some some of those 10 steps i'm like well that's like <laughs> those are kind of the 10 steps to love you know self allyship is something i realized I've been missing for a very long time and I think you can only be as powerful in in um fighting for for causes and fighting for rights and fighting for Um, your voice to be heard if you are in allyship with yourself. It's so unbelievably draining, more draining than anyone might think to be a person of color right now. When you are experiencing this kind of trauma on a global scale, whether you're directly impacted or not, it just creates this unbelievable, unbelievable fatigue. And the way that I'm battling that is to be in allyship with myself because I I realise I can't ask for things in the outside world that I would not ask myself to show up for. You know, I haven't always kept myself away from traumatic material. That's something I'm learning to do so much more online. And I encourage other people, you know, if you need a break, you have to... Rest. I realise it's it's been years and years and years where I actually I haven't held my own hand through disturbing and uh, triggering interactions, and in those situations, I wish I'd shown up for myself and told myself, um, "This isn't about you. This is this is about them. That the problem is out there."
0: It really seems like this constant barrage of trauma and images and messages from the media eroded your self-worth. But the book is lovely in that it feels in some way like you found it and yourself again.
1: The book was like a coming home to myself um, in a huge way. Um, I had actually, I decided to quit acting just before I started the book because I felt like I had lost something of myself. I read a really interesting book recently called Untamed by a writer called Glennon Doyle and she talks about in the first chapter being with her two daughters at the zoo and seeing a cheetah uh, being forced to kind of Chase this um, <laughs> kind of Land Rover with a with a sort of a bunny attached to it, like a like a toy. That was for the audience at the zoo and for everyone to clap politely, and for the cheetah to perform, and then kind of be let off into this field um, after performing her duties as a cheetah. And she says that her daughter pulls at her sleeve and and says, mum look, I think I think." I think that's her now in the field. And they look over to the cheetah in the field and she's kind of stalking the place. You know, she's not now running to this smattering of applause. She's kind of stalking her, her surroundings and she's coming into her full self. And Glennon sort of describes it as the cheetah having a deep hunch that she's from the wild, even though she's never known anything different other than the zoo. And I thought that was just such a strong image. And I just, I love the phrase, a deep hunch. Losing yourself, moments where you lose your self-worth, where you suddenly realise you've fallen out of love with yourself a bit. It is a deep hunch and um, not one that you necessarily are trained to listen to in any kind of way. So I think when I wanted to walk away from acting... I wanted to walk away from performance in general. I wanted to try and recreate some circumstances where I might be able to contact my my more authentic self because the boundaries do blur and it's not just specific to actors. As a woman... There's been days when I have woken up and gone. Who has this all? Who has this all been for? You know, I've, <laughs> I'm I'm a certain age, and I feel like I've been performing my whole life. And I think that's a universal feeling. And of course, the as you're saying, the images, the wording, the the world around us that is constantly is constantly selling us a low version of ourselves, essentially. I was I was struggling to to work out what was performance and what was reality, and and so I walked away and and um, you do have to be very careful about the things that you consume because they do lodge and they do um, take hold, and um, when you're in the business that we're in, you know where you're not only kind of psychically bound with the work, you also have to take it into a physical, embodying space. It, it, it can be very, very damaging.
0: And what examples do you have of not showing up for yourself where you wish you could just go back and do something differently?
1: It's the moments that I have shown up for myself that made me realise the moments I hadn't been showing up for myself. That's so interesting. I wish that we were taught so much more about self-love at, at school, you know, from kind of primary school ages, because you don't know what you're missing until you find it. And I have found it because I'm someone who likes to really kind of search, I'm interested in the human condition, I'm interested in reading, I'm in a position where I can go to therapy, I've been on this journey of of, of self-discovery for a very long time, and I think a moment where I really, really showed up for my... Actually, there's two moments, one kind of pre-real soul-searching, and, and one time is as a student, and um, <laughs> you're probably... You're probably more connected than you realise in those days because you're so open. You're just so open. And I was at drama school and got to my third year. And um, in that third year as a, as a drama school student, you are just doing your performances. I had these couple of moments where I really showed up for myself in the face of um the voice of the institution. And um, one was we'd we'd done um, whatever show it was and the audience had come and had an incredible time. The director who I'd worked with, um, who is from the professional world had really enjoyed what I did in the play and um, said that they would you know, work with me as a professional actor outside of the school. And that's like everything at that point, right? So there was all this positivity coming from the real world of what we're trying to do. And I got an awful grade. <laughs> and I was essentially told that I, I, thought I, I wouldn't really work. And, and I certainly would not get a first class degree. the the exact words were, you are not a first. I sort of just put a a shield around myself. Do you ever do that? Yeah. Usually I have no shield. I'm literally just like a blancmange in the streets. I
0: I have no shield, Zoe. No shield. It's what I'm trying to learn.
1: No shield, no boundaries, just a jellyfish in these streets. You're just like a floating membrane, right? That's how you feel. I'm led by the sensitivity of myself and and the feelings of others. And when will I, you know, get that? (laughs) When will I get that spine at the back of this blancmange to hold it up? So in that moment, I just, I put a shield around myself and instead of my usual instinct of like, yes, believe the bad thing, like the bad thing must be true. I just thought, you know what? No, I have a deep, I have a deep knowing that you're wrong. And I held on to that for the rest of my of my term. And I probably held on to it since then, you know, and I didn't realize how much I hadn't been doing that. I then went on to do this extremely um, feminist dissertation and got a terrible mark for that as well. I mean, the end of this, the end of this piece that I had written, co-written with someone else and devised and performed with another female performer, another black female performer, I mean, literally ended with me with like yards and yards of red ribbon um, that I was pulling from my vagina and <laughs> trailing around the audience. And I remember this moment where I just, I looped the ribbon about three times around that particular teacher. And I just thought, yeah, this is solidified now, you know, and I know that you're going to give me a shit mark and that's why I'm going to loop my metaphoric menstrual ribbon around you (laughs) because actually you can't, I relinquish that feeling of control.
0: And the showing up for yourself in your personal life, is it the same similar thing of putting that protective shield around you or is it a a different sort of showing up for
1: yourself and being your own self-ally? I feel like what's interesting for me right now, at the point I'm at, I'm 36, I'm sort of, you know... Obviously, like everyone during this lockdown, I've been looking back over <laughs> the arc of like my twenties and and you know late teens and stuff, and I realised that in in that moment when I was like twenty, showing up for myself meant putting the protective bubble around me. It meant forging ahead. It meant like putting my thoughts in my Feelings and my beliefs and my connections and my sense of fun and my sense of danger. All of the ideas and things that I felt were exciting or whatever. In a kiln and like baking them Um, and then dipping them in bronze and casting them and being like, that's me. And That's
0: so lovely, Zoe.
1: Which is amazing. And now the showing up for myself is... The opposite, I feel like for me, showing up for yourself in your 30s is about undoing, is about vulnerability, is about stripping back, is about allowing, is about surrender, is about returning a bit more to that blamangy jellyfish substance (laughs) that I was so keen to just run away from
0: just going back a bit to your school days because i know that you were bullied a bit do you think that was one of the things that had a lasting effect on the self-worth and the the inner critic
1: oh hugely in the best way possible i didn't physically i wasn't Harmed to a point of no return, or anything like that, and and many people are people are struggling with physical um, bullying. Children at school, you know, and it's a very different. That kind of violent bullying is a different thing um, and needs to be treated immediately by whoever's in charge, and, um, and and must be reported immediately by anyone who's who's suffering from that kind of violence. The bullying that I underwent was um when I look back now of course they bullied me <laughs> because I was just I was just weirdly enough I even though I'd lived in London my whole life I was I was quite naive I'm I'm grateful to my parents they never made me feel like when I went into the outside world that anyone would treat me differently or anyone would, you know, no one would come for me for any reason. They created such a safe space. So I feel like being really badly bullied was something that was just kind of gonna happen to me because I had had this incredible home life. And if you're someone who needs to threaten another person, if you're someone who needs to tear down another person, if you're someone who needs to make other people afraid, it's because you yourself are very deeply afraid and you don't realize that until later life. It says everything about the other person. I think, weirdly enough, again, where the Blamangi jellyfish um, substance that I'm made from um, comes in handy is, I feel like maybe I did know it, even though I was really young, you know? I think I was aware that that the people who were bullying me were in 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 probably a, a deeper state of pain. I was aware that softness meant you were probably loved, and that if you were harder, if you wanted to, if you wanted to punch, if you wanted to ha- harm, if you wanted to scream if you wanted to isolate people that that was probably coming from a place of fear you know your podcast is about love and fear and and look now you know the age that we're in of trolls and all the rest of it
0: I know because words they have such an impact and actually even without the physical violence I think words can be incredibly violent and there's this amazing woman called Donna Lancaster and she runs this retreat called the bridge retreat and she helps people through their grief and she's actually come on this podcast and she said that one heartfelt appreciation lands in the body and lasts for three days the chemicals stay there for three days and that appreciation can be our own voice or someone else's and when she said this I thought wow that's so that's so interesting and it's really stayed with me because words and language is just so powerful if you read them or if someone says them to you or you say it to yourself you know that inner critic it's very powerful
1: it's very powerful and as you're saying that the the power of the positive word is is equally as huge
0: so we are coming towards the end but i really wanted to ask you actually about your grandfather um who i know died not that long ago and if you don't want to answer this obviously please don't but I wanted to ask what life lessons he passed on to you.
1: Oh, that's such a good question. So my paternal grandfather, Sydney, I think, I'm pretty sure at this point is sort of the, the person who's made it to the oldest age in our family. And um, he died at 97, 98. And again, this has been... Such an incredible um sort of the past ten years have just there's just been incredible growth over the past ten years I'm really grateful, but one of the best and worst things was that he passed away, but one of the best things was that we actually established a very close connection in his kind of final months that you know the terrible truth of not valuing appreciating understanding um family um hearing their stories until they're about to pass away it's just this it's one of the saddest truths of life is that you just don't appreciate your parents your grandparents until um until something sort of threatens that and um I, I'm someone who uh, sort of struggles when people are ill or or if there's this imminent grief coming. I sort of um, do this terrible sort of pre-self-protection where I go, well, it's going to happen, so I might as well sort of kind of pretend to myself that it's happened now and that will protect me. And instead of doing that, I was like, I'm going to lean even closer into my grandfather and, and try and um, ask him the questions about his life that I've neglected to... Ask in all the years that I've known him and um what I what I suppose I learn from that and what you do learn from from being, you know, near anyone who's uh lived that many years and is um, you know, potentially on the on the brink of of passing over, is life really boils down to some very, very key moments. And they're not the fireworks moments necessarily. He had like five stories that he kind of wanted to tell on a loop or relive on a loop, you know, a handful of um, intense and, and life changing memories that weren't all huge. And I think I was at the point of wanting to stop acting and part of the reason that I wanted to stop is because I thought I'm not making enough space for my life. I'm not making enough space for the memories that you you will want to recount on the deathbed I I don't know if you ever you know get close to the dying of the light and go I do you know I wish I'd taken that series or oh do you know that I don't know Mm -hmm. oh that that film I got down to the wire for and you know missed that family gathering or that holiday with my best mate I wish I'd actually gone on that banging holiday so I think, though, I think it was just very. It was a very simple lesson that um, life boils down to. Um, to to the to the to the si- most simple most connected moments, and um, and the 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 memories are, are are of the. People that you have a profound connection with, um, whether for a short time or a long time,
0: and actually. Yeah, maybe the, the, the smaller things in life and those just connections with people rather than the huge firework moments are the the things that you really remember perhaps. But then Zara, you, you wanted to give up. You thought about giving up, but then you you found it again and
1: with writing. I think this whole this whole pandemic has reminded me of a very chance encounter I had with um a woman when I was in uh, Los Angeles years ago you can find yourself in Los Angeles as an actor and, f- and have a find yourself having a great time or find yourself kind of having a bit of a soul-searching time and I was certainly having a soul-searching time and I was kind of part way through writing the book and she t- we were in the same community yoga class together at this local library <laughs> and um she said, oh, can I take you for lunch? You're you're British. I was like, yeah. She was like, oh, I spent years studying in the UK and loved it so much. I'd love to treat you to lunch. And of course, my London instinct is this person is, is going to kill you. They're trying to kill you. They've invited you for lunch, but what they actually mean is they're going to take you down an alleyway and kill you. Um, and of course, everyone in LA is meeting constantly and having lunch with strangers and behaving that way. And it's um, <laughs> not something to be afraid of. Anyway, rambling. So I ended up going for lunch with this completely random woman and um, kind of telling her kind of my life story Um, and where I was at at the time. And um, she just happened to be this very holistic headhunter. So she kind of helped people move from one job to another, but in this very holistic way. And um, she told me to name my year and whatever I named my year, I had to live everything that year with this this be, be being kind of in, a, in, in, um, in communion with this title for the year. And I said, well, I want I want this year to be called on my own terms. And she was like, OK, it's a, <laughs> a bit strong. <laughs> it could be a bit kind of inflexible. I was like, right. OK. And she said, why don't you call the year true to you? And out of that year, this is from a random encounter with a stranger, I made some of the most profound decisions and life changes and discoveries that I could have ever uh, experienced. So I think when I wanted to, when I wanted to stop acting, I kind of thought I need another year of True to You. And it was, it was it was actually about reshuffling the cards with myself it was about playing with a new deck of cards and why 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 does my voice in the podcast sphere you know talking to you or talking to anyone else you know matter what's i'm um, you know i'm not selling anything at the moment i'm just you know <laughs> conversing with people i find interesting and and kind and um uh, and are on their own journey of self discovery but i suppose what i re- what i really want to be able to help people with not just actors people in general is this this renegotiation with yourself that can happen at any time um there's no hard and fast rules certainly when you're not in the arts and that's what we're made to think that you sort of get in climb into this box and stay there and it's just not true you decide you uh you know you are the you are the person driving the car and if suddenly you find yourself in the passenger seat and it doesn't feel good stop and um get whoever's driving to sit <laughs> sit in the back or chuck them out or do whatever, you know. Um, and being in the driving seat doesn't mean being in control, being on top of it, being okay. It just means that you are your own filter. You, you are your own truth. You are filtering everything through your own truth. and um, And that's... That's something i found (laughs) quite late on, but um, makes all the difference. And when we're talking about changing the collective consciousness within the arts, and we really have to, um, when we're talking about returning to the arts, having learned something, having uh, enlightened ourselves, having done the work, having um, looked inside ourselves and, and, and just thought, how can this be more balanced? How can this represent the world that we live in more truthfully? You yourself have to be in possession of your own truth. And it's just how I knew I would be more useful if i just stepped out of the box and got right with me and then got back in the car because this this is it's it is the time for collective consciousness and um i know to be part of the movement and part of the change i have to uh, i i have to be in the most truthful place with with myself mm-hmm. it's the, it's the old don't help anyone else with their oxygen mask until yours is on tight and I never used to understand that when I flew I was like excuse what if that person's really struggling with their oxygen mask I'm not just going to sit there and let them struggle but of course you can't help and you can't help someone else breathe if you yourself are uh, gasping desperately for air
0: and Zoe I I thank you so much for sharing all that I now end with three three quick questions and the first is what do you do for self-love
1: I would say right now reading books is my self-love gauge if I don't have a blue light on my face kind of doom scrolling or um trying to compare my life with other people and I'm actually involved in um the words of of (laughs) a person who um is is trying to Commune in 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 the good old fashioned way um, of putting pen to paper. Then that's when I that's when I feel like I'm connected.
0: And what's the song that fills you with love? Ah,
1: <sighs> this is gonna sound so great because I love music and I'm a, I'm I, I'm someone who listens to lots of different kinds of music. But the Hamilton soundtrack has me by the neck i'm literally in service to hamilton right now um so the song that fills me with love uh it's the song wait for it on the hamilton soundtrack and if you're a hamilton obsessive like me you'll understand why it's written and and arranged by the genius lin-manuel miranda but it's um performed by the original uh, actor who played uh, Aaron Burr in in Hamilton, Leslie Odom Jr. And um, his performance and his voice is, for me, just like, it's just like, it's protest, his voice and his performance in Hamilton. I'm just like, this is protest and poetry in motion. And he's the baddie of the piece, but he... I don't know he's he's um he's an incredible performer and the songs lyrics are I just I just find really inspiring and uplifting right now I think my one of my favorite lines is which perfect for your podcast is um love doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints it takes and it takes and it takes And um, death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes. But we keep living anyway. Um, I just love it. It's beautiful.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. And how do you show someone you love them?
1: This is is a good old fashioned love languages. (laughs) The five love languages coming out here. How do I... Well, it's sad at the moment because (laughs) one of my huge love languages is touch and holding and um closeness and and that's not something all of us uh are able to do right now so I would say I'm um, I, I I I hope that I show love by by just turning up I'm I'm quite good at just turning up you know um whatever that means for whatever person, I, I, I bet on myself to, to show up for the people that I love.
0: And I bet you do, because you listen, and listening is the most important thing, I think.
1: <laughs> I do too. I do too. I'm also a big gift. I'm a, I get like a crazy gift person. and like, mm. you know, hide, hide a gift under someone's cushion or something you know i'm i'm crazy with gifts so
0: (laughs) sorry thank you so much for coming on love itself you really are one of the coolest people i know
1: oh thank you um thank you for having me and um i wish every single one of your listeners well and i encourage all of you to lean into the politics of love rather than the politics of fear at this moment because for whatever reason fear seems to resound um more easily and actually the more rewarding more difficult way that we're gonna fix a lot of the serious problems that we have is is through the politics of love and hope and listening and understanding don't give up keep going
0: Thank you so much for listening and I hope it was as interesting and as useful to you as it was for me. It would mean the world to me if you could rate and subscribe and maybe even share it with a friend so that other people can hear about us. Join me next week where I will be speaking to another wonderfully inspiring guest. Until then, take care.